From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, Michiganders remember the September 11th attacks. We had a cordless phone. It was probably the first time my battery completely went dead. That phone was in my hand the entire day and into the night. People calling, friends, extended family, old college roommates saying, are you okay, what's going on? We also remember what changed just hours into the day. My parents begin to keep me home and be more mindful about where I am and where I'm going. I noticed a lot more stairs. People were moving away from me on the train when I got on it. People looked afraid of me. Arab and Muslim Michiganders talked this hour about the past 20 years and the wedge of post 9-11 bias. I wish people did not look at immigrant communities as special. That immigration story, it's the story of this nation. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. Who would have thought that a bright September turn-of-the-century morning would be the day that so many things in Michigan and America fell apart? Lives built one brick at a time were suddenly just dashed. The stability and connection that we take for granted, we don't see that safety net every day. We just assume it's there. But everybody lost something on September 11, 2001. And some lost more than others. Today, we're thinking about the thousands of lives lost and changed in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. And we're also mindful of the millions of Arab and Muslim Americans and others whose fundamental truths about their lives and citizenship were suddenly questioned. For many, those questions have never stopped. This hour, we're spending time with just a few of them here in Michigan, where Arab Americans are at home, maybe more so than in any other state. Zara Huber didn't actually start out living in Michigan. On September 11, 2001, she was living in Queens. Zara Huber, welcome to Stateside. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. There you were, a young woman, hijab-wearing and Muslim, living in, in New York City. What was the vibe like in the city for someone like you prior to 9-11? I mean, as you know, New York is so diverse. I lived in Queens, so my neighborhood was Muslim, Christian, Hispanic, Black, Arab, white. I mean, it was such a beautiful, diverse area, especially the one we lived in. And even the university I went to, the College of New Rochelle, um, was very diverse as well. So it was great. I mean, I rarely had any issues. Of course, you know, every now and then, like, few and far between a few comments, but You know, it felt very safe. I loved the diversity. I loved uh, being around other Arabs as well. Um, So it was really, it was a great vibe in New York City. Will you tell us the story of where you were when the attacks happened and and just sort of how you you processed the day? So I was home alone. Uh, It was my day off from college. And my mom and dad both worked at an Islamic school in Queens, but bordering Manhattan. So if they, for instance, went to their rooftop, they could see the Twin Towers from the rooftop of that school. So I was home alone. I woke up. I remember I was eating my cereal, and I happened to turn on the TV, and every channel had one of the Twin Towers burning and breaking news. And I was so confused about what happened because... You know, I was just waking up and just trying to catch up and not completely understanding what was going on. Um, I'm like, we were just there a few months ago, you know, when guests came to visit us. What is happening? And then just a little bit later, a second plane went into it, 
And immediately, of course, you know, everybody's like, okay, this is an attack. This isn't just an accident where a pilot just happened to like accidentally crash into the first one. This is an actual attack on America. I was home alone. I was really afraid. I didn't know what was happening. My parents, I couldn't reach them. All the phone lines were busy because, you know, that was around the time of the beginning of cell phones. And of course, you know, we still have the landlines. And so I'm trying to reach them on their cell phones. I'm trying to reach them on the landline. Everything is busy. The circuits are busy. And I'm freaking out because I'm by myself. Are they okay? What is happening over there with them? I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to reach out to. I didn't know who to call. Uh, so I kind of just sat on my couch in my living room all by myself watching everything unfold in horror. Yeah. When you did eventually go out and you were, you were out there with other fellow New Yorkers, what did you notice about their, their reactions to you and their interactions with you after that point? So to be honest, um, the city shut down for over a week. So no college, no trains, nothing. Uh, so we actually, our family did not leave the house for over a week. And then we heard horror stories about our friends and our friends' daughters or our friends' friends who were going out and were getting attacked, women who were being raped. So of course, you know, the fear of even leaving the house at this point was growing. And so when the university finally opened back up, you know, I emailed the dean and I said, hey, you know, I'm a little bit afraid of coming back to campus. I'm hearing horror stories about things that are happening on some of these, you know, college campuses. And he said, don't worry, like if anything happens, we'll make sure to take care of it. You are in safe hands, et cetera. So they were very good. Uh, when I did finally leave, I know when I took the train, I noticed a lot more stairs. People were moving away from me on the train when I got on it. Uh, people looked afraid of me. And I was this very skinny, <laughs> like outspoken girl. And it felt so weird for people to be afraid of someone like me. And of course, you know, I would hear people mutter terrorist and go back home as I walked by. However, I did get, surprisingly, a lot of random people would come up to me and say, and I know it sounds weird, but they would come up to me and say, we know you're not a terrorist. We know these aren't people, you know, who you associate with, which sounds so strange for people to actually like want to come up and say that. But also it was almost like a breath of fresh air because everybody was labeling us as Muslims and us as Arabs as terrorists. Yeah. Um, and then I also had people, more people come up to me and ask questions. You know, how do you feel about this? attack? What are your thoughts on it? What are your thoughts on Al-Qaeda? What are your thoughts on, you know, terrorism? Tell me more about like what your religion practices and things like that. So it was a, actually like an opportunity for me to actually talk about, hey, we're a peaceful people. These are extremists and they have nothing to do with our religion. And so it was really mixed. Of course, you know, I, I was afraid I didn't travel at certain times. I tried not to travel by myself, you know, for a few months after because of not just the horror stories I heard, but also some of the comments I got. You know, I, I heard some of my friends got their hijabs ripped off their head. I was just very aware of what my surroundings were at all times. Sarah, I mean, this is a lot. You were what, like 19, 20? I was 18 <laughs> at the time. And instantly uh, ambassador for the culture. Yes. Yep. I mean, I always kind of felt like an ambassador for the culture just because of the scarf on my head. I feel like it's a beacon. But at this time, you know, a lot of the people 
who I was around had never had a chance to talk to a Muslim woman. So suddenly I'm the speaker of the whole entire Muslim Arab American population. And me myself, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty liberal and, you know, I haven't like studied the religion. So like some of my answers, I'm like, I don't know, you know, I, I just know that, you know, these are extremists and we don't support this. But also I hated that I felt like I had to explain myself you know, I had to say, oh, no, we don't support this. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't do this. You know, this wasn't something that I would condone. This isn't something that my religion is known for really within our religion. And so I found myself apologizing for the actions of these horrible human beings, you know, for, you know, victimizing the country. And, and it was it was it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot for a teenager. Yeah. You came to Dearborn in 2002. That must have been a pretty big change for you also. It was. It was a really big change. You know, Dearborn, as you know, has the highest Arab American population outside of the Middle East. And so um, when I came to Dearborn, there were no comments. Everybody wore hijab. It was very normal, no stares. But also I, I missed the New York atmosphere because even though I was getting some of those comments from people that I probably wouldn't get in Dearborn, I didn't get a chance to kind of talk to people and explain, like, this isn't who we are, which really isn't, you know, I'm not saying that's my duty, but I loved having the chance to educate people about who we really are as a group of people. However, when I did leave the city of Dearborn, for instance, when I went to Birmingham or Somerset Mall at the time, it was very not diverse is probably the best way to put it. And I got comments there. I got stares. I remember somebody in Birmingham, and I had stopped going to Birmingham after this. Some guy in Birmingham leaned out of his car when he saw me, just walking down the street. And he leaned out of his car and went, and I remember I was so hurt that day because, you know, that's what some people think about us. And it just, I stopped going there and I just, I didn't like it. You know, I just didn't like going home with that feeling. Yeah. It's been 20 years this week, and I think that people who are Muslim might have, you know, some different things to say about the degree to which, you know, mainstream society considered a Muslim life a normal life before 9-11. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder what you think about how we're doing in Michigan with acceptance and with an understanding of all the things that you've been answering questions about your whole life. Michigan definitely has some work to do <laughs> in areas outside of the metro Detroit area. I remember I went to like the Upper Peninsula once with my family, you know, who wore hijab and there were a lot of comments and somebody even refused to serve us. And this was like four years ago only. So I do feel like there's areas outside of metro Detroit that need a little bit of work with just diversity in general, really, not even just as a Muslim or Arab American. But I do feel like metro Detroit as a whole there's a lot changing. You know, I, I do feel like we're moving forward. I do feel like people are more accepting and more understanding. And and we can also thank media for that as well. You know, I feel like there's a lot more diversity, you know, in the media now than there was, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. When I started my, my radio job in 2008, I was the only Muslim and Arab American in the entire building. And we had five stations I mean, it took them forever to realize not to put pepperoni on a pizza for me. <laughs> but um, I do feel like, you know, times have changed. I feel like there's more diversity, you know, everywhere you look. 
Um, and so it, it is helpful. But I do feel like we have a long way to go. For those listening who may not be in the know, pepperoni is 100% not halal. It is not halal. It is pork-based, and we cannot have pork. I hear it tastes really good, but <laughs> well, you know, but beef, we cannot eat it. <laughs> beef pepperoni is awesome, too. So It is. You are correct. So is beef bacon. Not a lot of people know about beef bacon, but if you're ever in an Arab store, pick up some beef bacon. I promise you will not be disappointed. Zara Huber, thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yes, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this. In just a moment, what was going on in Dearborn in the years after the hijackings and how one community became a stand-in for what white America thought it knew about Muslims. I hate how Dearborn is seen as this super exotic place. That's after a short break. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Part of what makes September 11th a Michigan story is the hundreds of thousands of Michiganders whose lives changed as a result of heightened policing and security practices. The populations that we're talking about here are a little hard to describe. Not everyone who's an Arab is a Muslim, and not all Muslims are Arab. But the four counties comprising Metro Detroit are home to the largest population of Arab Americans in the United States. And everyone even perceived as Arab or Muslim was in the crosshairs after the towers came down. Ali Harb is a journalist who lives in Washington, D.C. But he was a kid growing up in Lebanon on September 11th. A few years later, his family came to Michigan, and Ali spent his teens and early 20s in Dearborn, observing people who bore the impact of post-September 11th bias. Ali Harb, welcome to Stateside. Thank you for having me. When your family made the move to Dearborn, you were just a teenager. What was that like for you? Frankly, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have uh, a teenager transplanted, uprooted uh, to a new culture, new language. Uh, high school here is brutal. And I had a lot of homesickness. I missed my friends. I missed my neighborhood. Uh, which is which is not uncommon for immigrants in general, especially at the age of teenagers where you're not developed enough or mature enough to understand and take into effect the broader picture, yet you're not young enough to easily assimilate and forget. Ali, you became a journalist and you started a job at the Arab American News at Dearborn and you were covering a fair amount of politics. What did you notice in, I guess, what we'd call the post-9-11 years, about how the political winds were shifting in Dearborn. So the, the community had grown in size and number. Uh, I mean, the first story I wrote for the Arab American News was about a community event denouncing the Boston bombing. Uh, the event was attended by local officials, by local imams, and, and you could see that the community was emerging as a force. And also the same year that I started working at the Arab American News, 2013, uh, Dearborn elected its first uh, Arab American city council president, who also happens to be uh, a woman. And, and it was just a moment of, of jubilation for the community. Uh, in, in 1986, uh, the late mayor Guido uh, sent a flyer saying, let's talk about the Arab problem. 
he later really fixed his relationship with the community. He was mayor when I moved to Dearborn. And, and uh, I mean, people loved him by the end of his tenure because he made an effort into fixing that relationship. But this flyer tells you about the history of Dearborn. So to go from that to 2013, the city elects uh, its first uh, Arab American city council president. It just showed that Arab Americans are now a major force in the city, if not the major political force in the city. In those earlier years after 9-11, though, when you were sort of finding your feet as a politics reporter, what did you observe of Dearborn's, uh, I guess, national profile and the way it was talked about outside of Dearborn and indeed outside of Michigan? So Dearborn is the boogeyman for the far right. You have people in this country who have been dealing conspiracy theories about uh, demographic changes and about Muslims immigrating en masse to Europe and to the United States. And, and in their apocalyptic, unfounded theory, the Muslims would take over and declare Sharia law and, and subjugate everyone. So for this theory to work you need a sort of microcosm to warn about. Like, look at this place. The rest of America will be like this place. And in the early years, Dearborn was a perfect candidate. Because, I mean, you drive down Warren Avenue, Michigan Avenue, you see a lot of Arabic storefronts, uh, you see a lot of bakeries, a lot of shawarma places, people dressed in a hijab or, or in, a, in a Muslim garb. And it's beautiful to see this amazing subculture of food and music and literature emerging and, and marrying Arab culture to American culture. Uh, but to the far right on the internet, Dearborn was this place where Sharia law is happening, where there are stonings and honor killings where there, you know, women can't leave the house. Uh, it made it into the mainstream of the Republican Party. So uh, you had Fox News with, you know, Jesse Waters who came to Dearborn, did a, did a segment once, you know, and it opened with sort of like Aladdin music in the background. Uh, and, and he interviewed somebody who said there was a stoning here last week. If you went into the social media uh posts of that particular segment, they were like, you know, let's get our AKs and go there. You know, let's go stop the Muslims. Let's bomb them before they bomb us. So it was interesting in that Dearborn became this very scary place in, in right-wing circles, but it couldn't be further from reality because the city itself is just a beautiful multicultural place. Ali, it's, it's easy to see how frustrating that would have been for anybody living in the city at the time. Were there ways that that kind of demonization affected life in town? In town itself, it's, you know, life, life goes on as usual. One, one thing is, is you had to put a sheriff's car in front of the mosque. 
there were fears of, you know, what may happen. And, and this predates uh, our robust understanding of right-wing militancy, of, of right-wing terrorism, and how dangerous it can be. But there, there were fears. There were fears. There were anxieties. Like, what happens if somebody, you know, carries an attack against us because of all this demonization? And, and the local politicians, the community, they tried to push back against it as much as possible. Uh, mayor O'Reilly, who's still the current mayor, would, you know, issue a letter each time a segment misrepresenting or demonizing Dearborn comes out. Uh, the, the local politicians would issue statements. The community leaders would get together and do press conferences. But it never stopped. It just it just kept on coming. One of the other things that changed for all of Michigan and all of the United States after September 11th was a much more robust conversation about safety and perceptions of safety. And all of a sudden, the phrase, see something, say something, got used a lot more frequently. And for some law enforcement, that meant if you are Muslim, it's your responsibility to keep an eye on things. And maybe if you saw something that resembled an extremist sentiment to tell police uh, about that, was that top-down directive, was that, was that felt very much in Dearborn? It, it was and it wasn't because there was an ongoing effort to streamline these kind of directives from the federal government to community leaders. There was an effort to create some sort of dialogue between federal officials, including law enforcement federal officials, we're talking DHS, FBI, and, and the local community. A lot of folks in in the community saw this effort as, you know, euphemism for spying, basically. I don't see you going having meetings in, in Livonia or Novi. Why are you coming to Dearborn to have meetings? You're bringing a cloud of suspicion to us. Yet, many leaders in the community, uh, including imams, including longtime activists, the older activists, they saw this effort to have dialogue with the federal government as a good thing because it's a two-way street. Yeah, they come, they they rely their messages, but we can also rely our grievances and our messages, the no-fly list, the, the endless random screening of Arab Americans at borders at the border from Canada and the Detroit airport. So a lot of the younger activists, I would say, rejected this framing, rejected this relationship altogether. And the older, more old school activists and organizers wanted that dialogue with the government, wanted to be on the government's good side. Were there ways in which you think the internal politics of Dearborn were affected by all this external pressure? I, I would say no. I mean, I'm sure there was some effect, but the city local politics, uh, it's its mundane, April. I mean, Dearborn is just an amazing town. And if you look at it nationally, you have this Arab American community, Muslim American community that's thriving. 
But uh, on a micro level, people are worried about picking up the trash and and the length of the drive-throughs and uh, y- you know the salt that's being purchased for next winter. So uh, yeah, there were tensions. These national tensions do play a role. If you look at the voting in the city, there is a clear racialized voting pattern. People on the east side that's heavily Arab-American vote for Arab candidates. People on the west side are less likely to vote for Arab candidates. So these dynamics exist, but at the end of the day, what drives city politics is, is city local issues. Are there things that you wish more people understood about life in Dearborn or about immigrant communities in Michigan more generally? Yeah, I I wish people did not look at immigrant communities, especially of of Arab and Muslim backgrounds, as something special. That that immigration story, that immigration patterns, it's it's the story of this nation from, you know, the 1700s. So communities, they come, they they congregate, they create businesses, they evolve. And I hate how Dearborn is seen as this super exotic place. Like I said, it's, it is exotic in terms of the food that it provides. But beyond that, it's, it's just another town. Ali Harb, thank you so much for talking to us about this. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. hard to hide from people who wanted to make Islam a target if you were someone who wore a hijab or rocking one of those t-shirts that says, just do it. For Tariq Luthan, though, things were different. Tariq was born here. His family is Palestinian, and he grew up in Dearborn, too. He still lives in the metro area, and he's a poet, an organizer, and a data engineer. As you'll hear, his experience after September 11th brought up issues of identity and privilege, as well as safety. Tarek Luthan, welcome to Stateside. Hi, thanks for having me. I know you were just a kid when September 11th, 2001 rolled around, but can you tell us where you were when you found out what was happening in New York City? So I didn't realize what was happening until I got home, but I think it happened as I was on the walk um, from Williamport Elementary School back to my house. And so at the time, I used to walk to school and from school every day. Um, and it's really just a couple blocks from where I was living. Um, but I know that I came to find out what was happening when I eventually got home and saw on the back of in the in the background my mom had been watching the news, and I had just continuously seen like the same B-roll of footage of the planes crashing into the towers. Um, and my mother was not really too forthright about what was happening because I think she herself was also trying to figure out what was going on, and my father was at work, so it was this really weird situation where I wasn't sure what was happening until the ramifications started, which were in the coming days where, for example, that weekend, um, our school, our grade, I think I was in the fourth, fifth grade, um, was set to go on like a grade wide camping trip and immediately. So towers happen. And then my parents, you know, begin to keep me home and be more mindful about where I am and where I'm going. And so I think while I didn't know what was fully happening, Um, The ramifications started early on. 
Yeah. So uh, the the things themselves that were on TV were was that at all scary for you? As I mean, you were just a kid. I mean, not terribly, and I don't mean that in like an oblivious way. But I mean, I'm Palestinian myself, and so like I had actually grown up watching the news, like watching Al Jazeera and different kinds of um, news outlets, where I was kind of used to seeing very um, violent things happen on screen, whether it was to people who looked like me or people who were just, there's less censoring happening in a lot of other media outlets. And so I think for me, having grown up being from the Middle East, being Palestinian, I've seen things that I think made me a little more desensitized to the kind of shock that I think others might have faced when they saw that kind of footage. Right. Do you remember when your parents told you that, do you remember them stopping you and saying, no, you need to stay home in the days after when you might be getting ready to go out and do something? I mean, it wasn't really so much a stopping so much as them preventing me from, I, like, I wasn't on my way out. It was more like, we're taking you to school today or we're going to do this today. So it wasn't really like they stopped my routine. It was more like they kind of took control of it and then made a new routine in the as things were happening. So yeah. I don't really have a real good recollection of it, but I just remember that it was kind of like the flick of a switch where um, little things changed over the span of a couple of days. Yeah. What did you make of that? I mean, it was kind of weird. I mean, I think for me, the mo- in the moment, it was hard to make anything of it just as a 10-year-old. But I think over the years, I was able to kind of pick up on the ways in which that time really had longer term implications when we think of like policy. And I think for me, it was just, it was weird because being in Dearborn, it's kind of like a bubble. And I've I've seen other peers of mine kind of refer to it the same way where because you're surrounded by other people who look like you, other Arab, um, other people of your community or people who are adjacent to your community, I don't think we were as, I'd say, um, as vulnerable as other people might have been if they were in, for example, like the only Arab in their neighborhood. Whereas for me, I was, we were all Arabs, almost all of us in the neighborhood. And so we weren't necessarily facing this kind of um, neighbor to neighbor animosity. It was more so I think the community itself had this additional external pressure placed upon us. And so I think that was interesting to notice as I was growing up, as I was maturing. We need to take a break. When we come back, Tariq's going to talk more about the choices he found himself making as the country's reckoning with September 11th went from years into decades. But it's interesting to really look back at how a young a young person can try to either push away or lean into the different aspects of their family, their culture, their being um, based on a trigger event like that. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Let's get back to my conversation with poet and organizer Tarek Luthan. You know, sometimes as kids, we tend to interpret the world through our families, you know, especially our parents. 
they they loom so large in our in our minds at at that age. Do you think you were you got more of an impression from about what this meant to you or about this what what this might mean to your mom and dad? Yeah, I mean, especially my mom too, because my mom is is visibly Muslim. She's a woman who wears hijab, and my father is um, relatively darker than me. So I think for them, there were a lot more material conditions for them to navigate than myself, um, being somebody who's relatively light skinned um, and you know was able to speak perfect English and, and navigate this this country a little more easily than they could. Um, and so I think for them, you know, one of the things I was always told was, especially you know, being Palestinian, being somebody who was seen as, or at least raised as, um, raised to understand that everything I did served as a kind of barometer or referendum on what on, on being a Muslim or being Palestinian. And so for myself, um, I very, very vividly remember my mother telling me, and I can't remember if this was after 9-11 or before it, but just anytime I did anything, she was like, remember, everything you do, they're going to look at it one way or another. Like people are going to see what you do and you are representative of Muslims, you're representative of, of Palestinians, of Arabs, et cetera. And so I think having that drilled into you from a young age really, I think, makes salient the kinds of fears and concerns that my parents had. Because I know, for example, to your point, we've had, there's a history of, of racism towards Arabs and people of color. And you know, even though the community has changed tremendously over the years, I think 9-11 kind of just served as that spike to reinvite a lot of things. So. Mm-hmm. Tarek, you did mention you're, you're kind of a light-skinned guy. And yeah. you have described yourself as growing up sort of ethnically ambiguous. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've, I've just had a lot of different experiences where uh, different people would come up to me and speak to me in their own language, thinking that I knew their language, and whether it was Spanish or, I mean, in some cases, uh, um, Hebrew. And so it's like this weird scenario where, and so, um, I mean, I didn't present as Arab as I do now um, when I was younger, just because I had hair back then, but um, and I didn't have the beard. <laughs> but I think that's some of the stuff where, you know, I, I think about, you know, you asked earlier, how did I change or how did I navigate the world? Um, I, I was shaving all the time. I was trying to be clean shaven. I was trying to make sure that I looked a way that didn't invite certain barriers, so to speak. And I think while I may not have been conscious, I definitely know looking back, I was like, huh, it's interesting that I made those decisions with how I presented myself. Or for example, when I used to go on airplanes, I would make sure I was clean shaven just so there was no chance of being stopped. Um, so little things like that but yeah i definitely um it's it's interesting to see how um perceptions change and what people are comfortable saying around you when they don't know who or where you come from it doesn't sound that surprising that somebody in their teenage years you know might do things to to look like they're blending in um, i think that's something that just about any teenager would <laughs> could confess to having done I do wonder, at some point, did you feel like you had to make a choice about what you showed people about your identity? Uh, I mean, I think I've always had to make a choice in some ways. You know, I I come from a family that um, is an immigrant family. They have uh, certain traditions and certain um, belief systems that I myself have, you know, negotiated with since I live in a different, I've grown up in the West, I've grown up here in America. And so there's certain things that I didn't grow up with my parents, that my parents had grown up with. And so I think I've always been having to make that negotiation. Um, But 
I think, you know, my teenage years were interesting just because, you know, part of our negotiation as a family was we had moved to the suburbs and that was a unique experience in and of itself. Um, because that was actually the first time where we had left that bubble. And so the only reason I'm able to speak to Dearborn having been a bubble in the first place is because I knew what it was like to be outside of that bubble. And again, I'm not sure how much things would have been different if I had, you know, gone to high school in Dearborn, but I definitely had a lot of my formative years there. I think in my early to mid twenties, that's when I started to kind of like oscillate back. So it kind of feels like a pendulum swinging where on one one capacity i'm moving towards trying to seem unbiased and seem like i can be a quote unquote credible source and then as i'm maturing and finding more comfort in myself and and my name and the pronunciation of my name things little things like that that kind of add up over time there was a lot of course correction happening in my early 20s and i think i've kind of settled now Tarek Luthon is a poet. You can find his writing online at his website. He's also a community organizer and makes his living as a data engineer. Tarek, it's great talking to you. Thank you for sharing a bit of this with us. Thank you for having me. Saeed Khan is a senior lecturer of Near Eastern History at Wayne State University. He's developed a professional role of providing analysis of U.S. foreign and domestic policy as it relates to Arab, Middle Eastern, and other Muslim-majority nations. But 20 years ago, he was staring agape at the television in his house in Rochester Hills, his toddler daughter in his lap, and like everyone else, just trying to make sense of the scenes of horror unfolding in New York. It was probably the first time that my battery uh, on the phone completely went dead because that phone was in my hand the entire day and into the night. People calling, friends, extended family, old college roommates, uh, some from halfway around the world saying, are you okay? What's going on? Uh, People looking for explanations, people uh, just simply wanting to reach out and hear uh, from somebody else. Uh, and making sense of what was going on uh, as it was playing out in real time. Do you remember what kinds of questions you found yourself fielding that day and maybe maybe how, how you might have been challenged by them? There was a sense of uh, hope upon hope that this was not uh, something that Muslims had done. And to understand that, I think we have to hit the rewind button about eight years to when in 1993, there was the first attack on the World Trade Center. Uh, Fortunately, back then, uh, the damage was relatively minor. But what it created, though, was a series of events which created then a suspicion and a presumption that Muslims were the actors uh, whenever there might be an act of extremism or terrorism. I remember, for example, in the 1995 uh, aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing, there seemed to be this presumption, uh, and even in some quarters of the media, looking for the swarthy brown uh, Middle Easterner who may have been involved, and uh, one of the uh, suspects was Jose Padilla. Uh, But, of course, uh, the chief perpetrator was uh, Timothy McVeigh. And then uh, the following year, TWA Flight 800 taking off uh, from JFK, New York, 
and crashing in the air, exploding, as a matter of fact. And remember hearing FBI agents and others saying, yes, this was an act of international terrorism, when it turned out to be a faulty line in the fuel uh, system, uh, which brought down the plane. So there was a specter of suspicion on the Muslim American community, and one that I think, unfortunately, had already been internalized by so many Muslim Americans. And so when 9-11 happened, there was this sinking feeling saying, please, God, let it not be a Muslim. And unfortunately, of course, uh, before long, when uh, Al-Qaeda declared responsibility for it, those uh, worst fears were then realized. And what it did was, in many ways, is it created this uh, disruption in what otherwise would have been a shared experience in the moment with the rest of American society of the horror and the grief process of our country being attacked on that day. Yeah. You've lived many different places around the world. Do you mind telling the story of how your family came to the U.S. and and what your early perceptions were, were about how immigrants were welcomed at that time? Yeah, I was born in Pakistan, but uh, never lived there for any stretch of time. My mother uh, just wanted the delivery to be uh, close to her family. Uh, the first eight years of my life, I was actually reared in England and uh, spent really some of my most impressionable and formative years. And then in 1975, due in part with uh, my father feeling uh, a bit of the vice grip of uh, British attitudes towards South Asians, uh, we moved to New York City and uh, spent about two and a half years there. My father um, is a retired physician. Uh, we then moved to Houston uh, in 1977 and spent about a year and a half there. He then got an opportunity and a job offer to move to that buzzing metropolis in the thumb of Michigan, uh, Lapeer. And uh, for 42 years, uh, my parents uh, lived there until very recently moving down to the metro Detroit area after uh, my dad retired. But it was interesting that uh, when you asked the question about what were the perceptions coming to America, it was, as again, the cliche goes, seen as a land of promise, a land of opportunity, a land of fulfillment of the American dream and the immigrant's dream, that anything was possible and that if anybody uh, put their labors uh, to full use uh, and the full measure of that was then realized by society, uh, it would be a, a wonderful experience. And uh, I have to say that really that was the vast majority of my experience and that of my family uh, in living in the United States. And I would actually say that even when 9-11 happened, it dispelled a lot of, uh, I think, misconceptions that people had about America itself. And I'll give you a story about this. My parents uh, by then had lived for 22 years in Lapeer. I left really after high school when I went to college and then moved on. But given it's a small community and one that had uh, survived together the trauma of the recession in the early 80s, given its proximity to Detroit and Flint and its over-dependency on the auto industry, it was a community that really came together in, in such adversity. And 
my dad, of course, became uh, very much a part of the community, knew all the police officers, used to hunt with them. And on the night of 9-11, a squad car uh, pulled into their driveway. And so when they heard the car pull up, my dad just opened up the garage door and he saw a couple of officers that he knew by, by name. So my dad goes up to the cops and he says by first name, you know, hey, how you doing, Steve? How you doing, Jim? What's up? And they say, hey, doc, uh, how are you? And my dad, for whatever reason, uh, just seemed kind of clueless to what was going on that day. I mean, obviously he saw the trauma, but he didn't think about how it might affect him. And then they said to him, they said, look, doc, given what happened this morning in New York and in Washington and Pennsylvania, they said, well, we know that you and Mrs. Khan are family, but there may be some Looney Tunes out there who don't feel that way. So we just thought we'd stay here and uh, make sure you're okay. And they stayed there all night. And that's, that's part of our experience of being in America. Yeah. If we can pull back a little bit to your, your field of expertise, what do you see as being some of the biggest shifts in foreign policy that happened after 9-11 that, that made an impact in our local Michigan communities of Arab Americans and Muslims? Well, there were two things, of course. Uh, there was uh, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan to go after al-Qaeda, because after all, uh, the leadership was uh, located there initially uh, in the caves of Tora Bora uh, before bin Laden moved across the very porous border uh, into Pakistan, where he was then finally uh, uh, terminated a decade later. Um, but then, of course, shifting away from Afghanistan to uh, Iraq broadened not only the theater of conflict, but in many ways, it also broadened the uh, the specter of suspicion, not only on a broader field of Muslims, but also Arabs. And given the demographics of Michigan, uh, that had a very profound impact on how Muslims and Arabs in the metro Detroit area particularly started to internalize this idea of being problematized, being securitized. And remember, it's not just the foreign policy and the constant coverage of what was occurring there and some of the backlash uh, committed by, of course, extremists who were trying to bring the theater of conflict here to the United States. But it was also legislation like the USA Patriot Act and this constant sense of being uh, felt that the community was under surveillance. You would hear, of course, the threat level being announced at the airports, Uh, It could be as explicit as somebody being pulled out of line or being put on a no-fly list when flying. Uh, It could be uh, perhaps a subtle glance and a sneer uh, in a grocery line. And even those people who did not necessarily have a direct uh, incident of being uh, typecast, stereotyped, Uh, about being a Muslim or an Arab, because the community was talking about it so much, they started to internalize and embrace those stories as if it had happened to them. And so there became then this collective pall and a collective chill on how Muslims and Arabs felt uh, as, uh, as, as a group. 
when it came to incidents and events that were completely not only out of their control, but because of the complexities of American foreign policy and American response to that, uh, beyond their comprehension to really understand what was happening. Hmm. We've seen the effects of U.S. foreign policy and what the Bush administration used to refer to as the war on terror over the past couple of decades. Um, how, what do you see as being the impact on families and communities of Arab Americans and Muslims who have been kept apart by ge geography? Well, that was one of the, uh, I suppose the term collateral damage is used in so many different contexts when it comes to the war on terror. But part of the collateral damage was that it became much more normalized for what otherwise would have been seen as these channels of migration uh, to now be suspended or completely blocked. Right. So the idea that there was an acclimation and there was an ease by which countries could be labeled, designated, and entire populations could therefore be uh, blacklisted uh, just simply became at a certain point uh, too commonplace and too frequent. And in many ways, unfortunately, it seems as though the Muslim and the Arab community became anesthetized to that process. Uh, at least if it's rare, uh, there's the ability to respond in a visceral way, in an emotional way, saying this is wrong, this is wrong. But if it happens too often, it almost forms a kind of a habit and people become used to it. And so when the uh, the Muslim travel ban occurred, it just seemed to be a new incarnation of uh, the same quote-unquote war on terror and the same kind of typecasting of a community. Saeed Khan is a senior lecturer at Wayne State University. To hear extended versions of all these conversations you heard today, including how Saeed talks to his daughters about 9-11, visit us online at michiganradio.org. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.